0: Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Our Asker series rolls on, and today is something new. We're talking about the nominees for animated feature. That's a credit to my guest, Kent Seki. Kent, you've been working in Hollywood for almost 20 years. Most of your IMDb credits are under visual effects, but more than half of those credits are on animated films. You've been working in the animated space for the last decade. Very happy to have you join us here on Below the Line. thanks, Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, Kent, let's first set some context. Tell me about the process of creating an animated film from concept to theatrical release.
1: So the thing about an animated film, which is probably different from a live action film that most of your audience sort of already kind of has an idea about, is that the creative process happens over an elongated period of time. So I would describe live action filmmaking as concentrated creativity. And you have it at distinct moments, so it's often been said that you make the movie three times you make it in pre production when you write the movie design the movie and plan the shoot, then you make it again with your actors and all of your crew when you shoot the movie. And then there's one final time that it happens in post, when you edit the movie down do the visual effects, and you really sort of hone into what the movie is going to be and if your director. Is 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 a, is a very good director. They have an idea of that film all along the way, and are open at the same time as holding on to that vision as to what the those little magical moments that happen and the collaboration that happens at each of these concentrated moments. In an animated film, it takes place over the course of several years for the most part, in which you're making the movie or building the train as you're putting it down the track, and so that creative process happens the entire time. Like what most people don't realize about animated films is they start off with this concept of what it's going to be. And they start writing the script. And at the same time as they're writing that script, they're starting to design the movie and trying to like come up with the character designs and the casting and figuring out who's going to play these parts. And while that's going on, they're evaluating it, They start storyboarding the movie. Now the storyboarding process in an animated film is actually not called storyboarding. It's called story. And so The story department, the reason why it's called story rather than storyboarding is they're an integral part in sort of almost the writing or conceiving of the film. So the script gets written, but then it gets interpreted by the story department, who not only draws panels of imagining what the movie will look like based on the art that's being generated simultaneously, but they're interpreting that script. And then they're reimagining a lot of times the sequences that they're doing to sort of enhance that sequence. It's like a plussing process. And once that story sequence has been completed, it goes to editorial and they cut it together using temporary voices or scratch, what they call scratch dialogue and scratch music and sound effects. And they present this to the director and the, edit- and the, the studio who evaluate this movie along the way. And in fact, are several screenings internal screenings with their brain trust whether it's a pixar dreamworks disney at these major big studios in which they evaluate the movie and then they go back and redo it again and again and again and in fact most people are surprised that this happens almost every 10 weeks sometimes eight weeks in which it's constantly reevaluated and redone and all along the way. The producers and production managers are looking at that movie and deciding, well, this sequence seems out of all of the sequences in the movie, which there's sometimes 30 to 40 sequences in an entire film, these ones are the ones that seem most solid. So we're going to start putting them through the production pipeline in which you start building the models and you start designing and building the characters and rigging and getting everything prepared for animation. And you start completing those and putting them into the machine and it's like a waterfall where each department starts to come on and do their components of that sequence but at the same time other things are being completed and redone so it's like a game of jenga in which you know you're removing pieces and putting them back in as you're making the movie and so it requires almost a larger sense of creative endurance to complete an animated film and to keep it on track to sort of finish it and and that's probably one of the things that is most distinctive about an animated film. It's a much more collaborative on a day-to-day basis process than maybe traditional live-action filmmaking. Also, everything you see in an animated film has to be constructed, designed, constructed, approved in some way, even if it's a matte painting, it still has to be approved and someone has to make it. So in a way of live-action filmmaking, there's a location scout. They pick this place. Some of, you get some things for quote free, meaning that you've decided it's not free. Obviously someone pays for, and someone has to decide, but, They're not actually painting or designing the landscape. It's there, right? You can enhance it later in visual effects. But in an animated film, every single thing is painstakingly decided. And it's impossible for the director to decide everything. They ultimately have to approve everything. But those micro decisions are being made by artists, uh, uh, creative leadership heads, and they're all working in conjunction to create the movie that ends up on the screen.
0: One of the things you said about the comparison with live action, uh, Kent, that, that prompted a question for me. I think it's interesting, you talk about making a film three times, what happens in the scripting process, what happens in production and then post-production. It's also true that what you do in a later stage can completely undo or redo or sort of reimagine what was done in the earlier stage. But with animation, that doesn't sound possible. It sounds like, ironically, you have more control over every single element but things are integrated in a way that there's a lot of moving pieces that have to come together. And so it, you can't just change things on the fly.
1: It's an interesting uh, sort of observation. It is true that in live action, you're reacting. Like, I think the, the biggest thing you can point to is the actors, right? The actors come and they read the lines and they become the character. And if you're, and as a director, you have to sort of see that and embrace that, right? You have to see that the actor is bringing this character to life and becoming that character. If we look at a character in an animated film, you have the script, you have the story department that's reinterpreting that character. Then you have the actor who's reading the the lines and coming up and improvising and, and, and breathing life into that character. And then on top of that, you have the animation department that actually is the actor or the actors of animation the animation world that are doing the character animation blocking and the performance on the face and so all those steps along the way you have to keep in mind what the actor did the intention of that actor but also be open to what the animator is doing and by the way it's not one animator per character it's one animator per shot so within a sequence you could have oh it's a two-minute sequence you could have. 10, 20 different animators animating the same character. And so there's all of this stuff that I think the thing you said is keep in mind, you have to keep in mind these other micro decisions along the way so that your film stays cohesive. And it's in the same way of like, when I say the sequence has gone into production, the director has to keep in mind that sequence has gone into production, the ramifications of that sequence and have what I would call court vision. So in basketball, Larry Bird is a famous basketball player, which dates me very much heavily as far as like some people your know, artists may not know who Larry Bird is. But Larry Bird was a Boston Celtic, is a great player, was famous for what they call court vision, meaning he knew where everybody was on the court at any time without looking. And so he could pass behind the back without seeing because he knew Kevin McHale would be there to catch it or Danny Ainge, who I didn't dislike immensely as a Lakers fan, would have it and shoot the three point. So in the same way, a director has to have good court vision about his movie or her movie their
0: movie, um, and know where each of the parts are and what process they're in. Okay, that's fascinating. I think we could do a, a whole episode talking just about how these movies get made. Let's turn our attention to specifically the nominees for this year. And as a reminder, there will be spoilers. We'll do these in alphabetical order. First up, Onward, the nominees are Dan Scanlon and Corey Ray. So Onward is the one of two Pixar movies that are nominated
1: this this time around. And it's I think this is the, maybe the first time that, two Pixar movies maybe nominated simultaneously. Um, and it was the first to come out last year and it came out sort of at the beginning of the pandemic. So it enjoyed for a little while a, a wide release, but then quickly it was sort of, everything was sort of went to hell in a handbasket. let's just say with the whole theater's experience. So, you know, it's an interesting mark in time. It's uh, a movie, if for, the, uh, for your audience hasn't seen it, it's a movie about two brothers who are elves who live in a fantasy world. It's like a modern version of a fantasy world, like in Dungeons & Dragons, let's say, who want to meet their, f- their father who passed away a long time ago for a day. There's a magic spell that can bring him back for a day. And they try to enact this magic spell, and it goes horribly wrong. And then they have to go on a magical quest to right the wrong. And they have only a day to right this wrong to meet their long lost father. And so that's the premise of this. Dan Scanlon, who wrote and came up with this movie, um, it's very personal for him. His father passed away when he was, I think, one years old. So he never met his father and his brother. He has an older brother who is not based, the character is not based on his older brother, but is the spirit of this relationship, the fraternity between these two brothers is based on his relationship with his own brother. And they never met their father, really. But later in their life, as they became teenagers, apparently Dan had heard an audio recording on a cassette tape. Now that dates him as well, of his father talking. I think he only says hello and goodbye. And it was fascinating because they had never heard his voice. And so it brought up this idea of, hey, what would, if we could bring back our father, what would that be like? And that sort of is, I think the genesis of a lot of movies is, is something based in reality. And it's a personal connection this director has to this material. And that they went through many rounds of like, well, how can we do that? Can we do it with like a machine technology wise? And no, they actually, you know, came to magic and that sort of born this whole fantasy world that they sort of live in, this Dungeons and Dragons. I like to use that because that's something that people sort of generally have an idea about world. And it became a quest. And it's a, a great Pixar movie in the sense of a world building movie, right? It Im- reimagines the fantasy trope in a modern context. And it's, it's a real interesting sort of take on that sort of genre. I think the ending is really interesting to ha- and the, the story on the making of is they had the ending first before they had written sort of the middle of the movie so when you make a movie sometimes you know what how it's going to end and you sort of try to get to that point and other times you have the gen- you have the idea and then you get to the ending through sort of this painful process of trying to find your movie right and in this case they had their ending so now their challenge and you, your audience can decide whether or not they were successful is earning that ending like, do, and, and I think that's something that we talk about a lot in movie making is does it feel like your characters earned the payoff, right? And so I think that's an interesting thing to consider when watching this movie is does it feel earned, right? And from a technical standpoint, like Pixar is at the top of the game in terms of using all the tools available to computer graphics. Like, they are at the forefront, and it's very clear when you watch this movie as well as Soul – like how how true that is, like, and in this, and it's it's interesting to compare the art of both of these movies because I would argue that Onward is a more stylized movie. It looks at the design and the use of color, really, and it takes that design and color from the fantasy world. Mm-hmm. If you look at the skies or like the landscapes or the lighting of the of the the shots themselves, they're very much stylized and using color. And the shape of the clouds and the sort of the design of the world itself is very much. It doesn't look realistic so 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 much as it looks stylized. And that's something that comes up a lot in the world of animation and is debated heavily, actually, in the world of animation. There's many camps in this. So the, there's the camp that believes that the photorealism movement in computer graphics is bad for animation, uh-huh, or okay. is, it's a pejorative term, and that stylized or more like things that are more fantastical or not real is more true to the world of animation. And sort of, because if you can make, if you're trying to make it more real, why don't you shoot a live action movie, right? That's the argument. And that the art of animation is in, is in the art, is in the creation of something new. So while there's merits to both, I think it's up to the audience to decide what they respond to. And I can see value to both arguments. It really is a case of like, well, I understand why someone who is in the stylized camp, but I also at the same time, there is artistry in the real photorealism camp as well. And, and it's a mix of technical and artistry that makes an animated film, not in the modern world or the modern sense of it, any kind of computer generated one, which is, you know, a lot of these movies are. So it's a good debate to have. And you will now have in this category, two examples, I think of sort of kind of both from the same studio, right? So like, it's an interesting sort of, Uh, are, you know, like comparison between the two.
0: Now with Onward specifically, are there specific areas that that caught your eye as a working professional?
1: I mean, I think that in Onward, the the world building is extraordinary. And that's one thing that Pixar is just
0: great at doing, right? Like, I think they've been Mm -hmm. known
1: for this idea of, like, it doesn't exist in real life. And now we're going to make this thing up and it has little details. I think that the tavern they visit is super charming and that Chuck E. Cheese... Reimagining so going to the tavern is a trope in all not all but in many fantasy games and in thing and you go to the tavern to get information right and you're like the tavern the barkeep knows things and like to reimagine it as Chuck E. Cheese the equivalent is is, it's sort of run down and kind of like lost its luster I think that's really great I think that's a design choice is really fantastic. You know, it's, it's just sort of, you know, a really fun thing to do. And even the tests along the way, there's this great scene in which they have to walk across a chasm. And the chasm is this, you know, it's like basically a bottomless pit. Right. And they shot it in a way that should, if you're watching it on a big screen, will, you know, kind of give you a little make you a little queasy. And it's something that comes up for a lot of animated films is to make it feel as if you were really there. And that's where the live action-y part comes in, right? Mm-hmm. So you're like, you think, well, you know, a, this is maybe an argument against the sort of stylized is you want your audience to feel something. So you're you're drawing upon known concepts that, you know, the film goers have and the idea of vertigo and feeling like you're gonna fall. like Those are all cinema tropes. You know, those are all traditional live action things, but you use them because you're trying to evoke a feeling. And I think that they do an effective job in shooting that the chasm sequence, for example, of feeling that way. I think that the, the end battle is spectacular and I don't want to sort of give it away because there's just a lot of fun stuff that happens there. Um, and I think that it's, it's a great, it has that Pixar. Like Pixar is known for making you cry. Right. (laughs) It's like, that's the thing (laughs) it's, it's going to make you cry. Right. And and I think, you know, like it, when you watch it and, and I think you have those feelings, I think they do a great job of evoking those feelings, um, because they they know, I think it's true to what Dan Scanlon wanted to be. Like it's a very personal movie for him. The longer I've done this, the more I try to find something personal when I'm working on a movie, even though I'm not the director that I want to sort of feel when I'm working on it, because I think those things all come out. Like they come out in little ways across every movie. And that's the magic of filmmaking is that everybody's bringing something to the table in the, in the filmmaking process. And, and, you can definitely feel and I've read interviews with Dan Scanlon about, mm-hmm. I've never met Dan, but like, I, I really do feel the hand of the director in this movie. And I, and I think your, your, your viewers will too, especially if they know this stuff going into it, you know, like it's one thing to go in and then there's an argument to me that you shouldn't have to know any of these things when you go watch. So like, it's always like, do you read, it's like reading a book, right? Do you read the synopsis before you start the book? Do you read reviews? Cause it sort of colors your opinion about it, but it's from a, just of a filmmaking standpoint I think they've done a great job
0: of building that world. Kent, to your point about what people go going with the movie, I will tell you that my mom likes to watch the movie, then listen to the podcast, and then watch the movie again. I don't know how she's going to get through all of these with the, <laughs> yeah, the Oscar nominees, but... Uh, <laughs> it's a
1: lot to get that's through. I mean, animated films... You know what's funny? is, and I think animated films are super challenging in a lot of ways, because in a live-action movie you're looking like i am looking at your face right now and i'm you know trying to gauge whether how the conversation's going if it's interesting or not interesting and you're making micro decisions along the way about you and me and sort of how this is all going and in a film it's the same thing you're watching a person right and so the, the actor is bringing their face and, and emoting and, and it's easier to connect Right, It's it's much easier to connect with the character you're looking at on the screen because it's a real person. As soon as it's animated, you have this artifice that's between the audience and the character, right? And so great animation is able to bridge that gap, right? It's like, that's the artistry of animation is you and I watching it, no, it's not real, but yet we're feeling this feeling that's coming from the characters. And I think it cannot be overstated how important it is that your animation is acting is and it's doing the job that an actor is doing and it's a, a different job it's not more difficult but it's difficult to connect and I think that 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 when you when you walk away from an film and you have emotional attachment or feeling then the animation department did a great job and one of the people we're going to talk about in one of the movies is going to be over the moon and Glenn Keane uh who directed over the moon he is at heart, an animator, and, 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 and kind of a famous one at that, and because he's fantastic at doing that thing.
0: Well, let's turn our attention to that. That's the next movie on our list. Over the Moon, the nominated team is Glenn Keane, Jenny Rim, and Palin Chow.
1: So Glenn Keane, for your audience that may not know, is probably the closest thing in the animated world to a living legend, as sort of is right now. Like, so to give you some context about Glenn, he's a 38 year veteran from Disney. So 38 years at the mouse, like the, the house of mouse, the most famous animation studio in the world, so basically the studio that invented modern cinema animation, right? So, and he studied, he literally studied under what is referred to as the nine old men. So in the history of animation in the United States, there is a group of Disney animators who started at the beginning with Walt Disney who are referred to affectionately as the Nine Old Men. And I can't remember all their names, but you you can get books about them. And there are many sort of famous books about these guys. And if you watch any documentary about Disney, they are mentioned heavily and they're revered. They are just literally in the world of animation, revered as legends and gods almost. And here is somebody who studied directly under them. He went on to not only to animate, but design Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Uh, He was the supervising animator, I think, on um, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas. So that's how famous, you know, Glenn Keane is. And then he won the Oscar for the short film he made, Dear Basketball, with Kobe Bryant. Anyway, so that's a long way of talking about Glenn Keane, but he's the director of this film for... Uh, netflix is the distributor but it was actually with pearl studios which is a chinese studio and then sony animation or spa and actually sony, sony image works was the vendor of for the film so the the origin of pearl studios actually it pearl came out of oriental dreamworks which was the, supposed to be the chinese division of dreamworks animation under jeffrey kassenberg but when universal studios you know universal bought dreamworks They let that part go and they became independent and became Pearl Studios. And in fact, their first film, I believe, was abominable with DreamWorks. So they sort of did it in
0: conjunction.
1: And so this is their
0: their movie after that that they made with Glenn Keane. Let's talk about what he did with Over the Moon as far as what he brought to it or how this movie came together. So the
1: story, let's first talk about just a brief synopsis of the story. Over the Moon is about a 14-year-old girl who's struggling with the loss of her mother. And it's a movie about loss, but also about acceptance. Uh, and it very much plays with a, a, a known uh, Chinese legend and uses uh, that as the sort of the backdrop for this film. I think the thing you can look at, one of the things I always look at for a Glenn Clean movie is the character design because he is a character designer and the animation. And one of the things I read when sort of looking at this movie and, and, and thinking about it was that Glenn quoted himself quoted It was quoted as saying, like I drew more on this movie than I have in a lot of my films where I animated. And that's back from the drawing days. And I thought that was interesting and I can kind of see why. So part of the, the process of making animated film is the animators, you know, go and they do a version of the shot and they animate their character. They've animate in various stages. There's a pose or a step mode in which they are literally going from one pose to another. And it's not smooth in which they're hitting key moments in a shot. And, when that is presented, if you're the director, oftentimes you're sitting at a table that has what we what's called a Cintiq or a tablet in which you can actually literally draw on top of the frame you're looking at. And so that's what I interpret as what Glenn says that I drew more is that he's actually physically drawing on top of what the anime did to sort of show the flow of what he was trying to get out of of the shot. And so I think that's an interesting thing. So when you look at the posing and the facial expressions, chances are that Glenn has had a keen eye, no pun intended, with like what's going on there. And if you look at like a scene, there's a a scene in the movie before she goes to the moon in which um, the main character, uh, Fei-Fei, sees and realizes that her father is interested in this woman. And they cut back to Fei-Fei's face and it's an unspoken scene. And you, as the audience, can feel her s- sorrow, um, denial. It's a combination of a lot of feelings, you know, and surprise that this thing is happening, right? And that's the power of that, sh- of that scene and-, and how well animated it is, is that you really do feel it. So I would, I would say that if you were to go back and watch it, look at that scene and, and watch what happens there. Because it's a moment in which I think the artistry and mastery of Glenn Keane is obvious and the mar- artistry and mastery of the Sony Imageworks animator is also, you know, very obvious. I think that there was talk early on of hiring an actress to come in and, and sort of do some, some posing and some acting for some of the shots. Um, there was very, there was some discussion about it because I think Glenn had used that technique to sort of come to, to create Ariel for little mermaid, which would make sense, you know, to mm. bring in reference, but um, they ultimately decided to walk away from that because the animators now, now in sort of, if you will, any modern animated film, most time what happens in a CG one, the animators themselves film themselves as reference. And, and it's it's sort of this interesting thing where you will see a lot nowadays, you can find it on the web where you find animators who show their, their own reference, and then the final or side by side. And there's this amazing thing that happens that now every animator on a modern CG animated film is acting, like it's, physically inhabiting the character and that there's value to this right because what happens is that puts the animator even more so in the mindset of the character so it's not just this foreign thing so i I think there's an argument to be made that the computer as advanced and as as helpful a tool as it is is yet one more level of of abstraction and separation from the work like Mm -hmm. there is something to be said about hand drawing and it's a question i get asked a lot is like how much do you draw and the answer is i don't draw that much at all like except for very rudimentary diagrams uh because everything's done on the computer and i think to some degree that's the loss that a lot of people feel when comparing a 2d animated film to a 3d animated film is that this hand crafting it forces you to inhabit that moment a little bit more than using a mouse right the mouse is you're manipulating something that's foreign, right? And the acting, the physical acting helps you re-inhabit that character. And I think Glenn really responded to this idea and this notion of doing so. And it allowed a, a group of people who aren't physically in the same room with Glenn to inhabit the character and for Glenn to sort of feel this, you know, connection. I, and I think it's super helpful. And I think it was one of those things that, you know, for, for Glenn Keane, who's, this is his first fully CG animated film that he's directing, I think it was a moment for him to like feel some discovery, and and I can totally understand where he's coming from as far as that process goes, and and, and it's it's fascinating to watch the movie knowing it's Glenn Keen, because then you're looking as me as somebody who works in the industry is looking for the Glenn Keenisms, I guess, of it all, and you know it may sounds a bit corny, but like when you watch a master at work, you want to see what they do because it informs me as far as like as somebody who works in the industry and, and 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 you want to learn from those those people because it is it is super inspirational, right? And in this film, I think the thing that it could have been a 2D animated film, like it, and, and he was asked in some interview, you know, why why did you choose to make it CG? Because you, you know, you have this wealth of knowledge of 2D animation. Like wouldn't it seem to make more sense for you to make it in a 2D sense since that's your background? And it was interesting. His answer was because when we go to the moon, we're creating this new world. And again, so we're coming back to why is the film animated, which is a question you should ask all your, your viewers. Should ask. Is this fundamental question? Why would this film, why is this film animated? Because it informs sort of the style, the choices, and also the sort of motivation behind some of the decisions, the creative decisions in the movie. And they go to this fantastical new world at the moon. So the moon itself is not the traditional moon with the craters. And it has some of that, but like, there's another world behind that, which is this, I would say chromatic wonderland of sorts. Right. Where it's like, it's this multicolored thing. And this is a translucency and this refracted light. And he, in his mind knew he wanted this thing, this, the other world. And his, his, sort of touchstone for that world was of all things pink floyd's dark side of the moon album cover and if any that's again dates me if anyone knows your audience well first of all your <laughs> audience no matter what should know pink Floyd the wall and should know dark side of the moon okay they should they listen to it. that because it's a masterpiece okay so just shame on you if you're too, if you don't know this okay anyway it's an album cover in which there's like a white light it goes through his triangle it's a prism and it breaks off into sort of refracts into the rainbow okay if but in his mind, that chromatic aberration or the chromatic you know, separation meant that it had to be CG because the thing that CG takes advantage of is actual light, is the physics of light and the properties of light. So refraction, the way the color and light bounce off each other and inform. So like if I have a red watch and the red watch is against the white wall, the wall has some of the red splash of the, of the light hitting my watch and then getting absorbed by the watch and, and then shooting out some red light back onto that wall, right? So that's reflecting back on the wall. That CG does amazingly well. So that made it, for him, an imperative that it was CG. So again, it could have been easy for Glenn Keane to say, because I think they would have, the studio Netflix would have would have said, yeah, no problem, we'll make it 2D animated film. But he looked at all the tools available and said, the tool for this film that's best used is... CG and he made that choice and then at the same time if you watch it there's this great sort of legend tellings part of the movie which is 2d animated which is him drawing like literally his drawings in there I, I don't know if he drew the whole thing but he definitely had a you know a, a heavy part in drawing the legend sequence so that's another sequence I'd say look at the world building in the moon world and then also look at the 2d uh, legend reveal when they talk about the moon goddess I think that that's Glenn Keane doing what Glenn Keane does amazingly well. And an example of Glenn Keane stepping outside his comfort zone and doing something that he hasn't traditionally done before. And I think that that's some of the power of the film for me is looking at those elements in the, in the movie. I think it's, I think that's what's great about that film. I mean, there's also, there's also a really great sort of k K-pop sequence, which I'm not, I want to get into it. It's, it's also the only musical in the list of, of, of movies I think that we have. Yeah, it is the only musical that straight up, it's an actual musical. Um, So that makes it different.
0: Ken, something you said about um, CG animation being the right tool for this kind of approach, is that because when you're talking about light refraction and such, just crunching the numbers, curious about what CG animation does technically that makes it the right tool?
1: So this is only my (laughs) opinions. I
0: I always like, when people ask me about movies,
1: I'm like, well, I have a lot of opinions. They may not be right, So, but (laughs) in my experience. So- Uh, The thing about computer graphics is in order to create anything, a light lighting model, they have to base it on something. And so almost everything is based on physics. So lighting in computer graphics is physics based. So you actually, when you're, if for people who don't know, if you're lighting a scene in general, you have to create a light that has properties and you're controlling the properties, the luminance of it, the hue, the value. And that probably literally is bouncing a ray of light into a scene or several thousand rays of light and bouncing them off the objects. And that creates lighting and it actually creates shadow. this it's a real shadow that's happening because this ball is obstructing the light source and it causes a shadow on the ground. Like That is sort of how it's constructed. So if you're making something that requires light, true lighting values, like refraction, in which a ray bounces, a ray of light bounces into an object, and then is bent, and then comes out. Right, so that uh, concept is actually happening in the scene. Right, so it allows you to do those things, which are like hard to do in, in in a drawn form. It really is hard to to do it correct. It's very quickly you know when it's not. Right, and so you get a lot of things. At, I don't want to say for free. But like you were saying, the computer calculates this. It's part of the program itself. It's part of the model. And every once in a while, there are huge advancements that happen in computer graphics. So early on, you couldn't make a shadow. Like you couldn't have a, a ray of light come in and hit this cup and then cast a shadow on the ground, on cast a shadow on this piece of paper. Right? They wouldn't like that little shadow or anything. It, it wouldn't. So what you had to do is you had to pre-calculate it. You would go in and tell it, oh, put a camera where the light is, and then project a shadow on the ground, wherever that camera can't see, that's a shadow, right? And it would make a fake what they call a uh, 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 projection mapped or shadow mapped light, right? Until they were able to make computers fast enough to be able to do it in a period of time that could that could calculate And then there was another advancement where they said, see this HDR, R I images high dynamic range photo of the sky, use that to calculate light. So now you're getting rays from all over, you creates a, a, a sphere from this image and it shoots light rays out from each color of the image onto the world. And that uses it to create what we call global illumination. So that's another advancement. So the sky, like in the world we're in, so of course the sun, if you're out in the daylight is the main light source out there, right? So it, it casts shadows on ground. but there's an ambient light and that ambient light is generally the sky, right? And so it's all the rays of light that are being captured by the sky and then pr- bouncing back into the world that we're looking at. And so now there's a way to do that. So all of these things is it's a long way of saying yes you're right that the computer <laughs> can do all these things and it's all it's amazing how fast those advancements happen like the two advances i or i talked about which is like ray tracing which is sort of what the which is i did a poor job of explaining and global illumination which i also did a poor job of explaining those advances has happened in the last 20 years mm. and, and maybe even the last 15 i would argue you know widespread and in a form that can be used by everybody so like yeah physics it's
0: great turn our attention to the third movie on our list, which takes a completely different approach to the animation, and it's a Sean the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. The nominated team is Richard Fellin, Will Betcher, and Paul Kewley. So, Sean the Sheep is the only claymated animated
1: film on the list, and it's a great it's great when you see different kinds of animation. So, this argument is from time it's okay. So if you talk to any animation person, right. They get really angry when you call not you, but anybody, when anybody calls, uh, animation, a genre, right. And they, they, there's a big debate about this. That is, is talked about. It's like animation is a medium, not a genre because you can do all kinds of things with it. And the uh, animation medium also includes claymation for telling stories. And the Sean, the sheep is a unique, uh, animated film in that it is c- claymated by a company that's famous for it, Artman Animation, and that they exist in the UK. And it, it has, I think, the one of the reasons why I, what makes claymation charming is the same thing that makes um, hand-drawn charming is the hand in it, right? So you feel the hand of the artist posing each of the frames. So it's each frame, 24 frames a second, is hand-posed, and then a picture is taken by the camera, then moved, and then pictures taken. So it's all done by hand, not on the computer. It may be enhanced by the computer later, but it's all done by hand. And so there was something super charming about that. And the character designs are super charming because they get all this volume. It just You just feel it. Like there's something, like, you know, I would challenge anyone not to watch it and be like, oh, that's charming. Like, like the, the word... That word is super appropriate for a claymated film. It's charming. Like there's something about it that really, um, and it. I think it's it goes beyond age too. I think that like young kids love it too because they sense it. Like people who don't even know the theory of like animation are like, oh, there's something very nice about that. That like they can relate to that hand quality of a of a film. And Artman is unique because they've held on to this technique over the years despite the pressures that exists to go with CG and the pressures to go CG are mainly financial, not because it's cheaper, but because they make money. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think there's sort of a, a misconception that animated films in CG are cheaper than hand-drawn because the cost of drawing is so expensive versus the cost of a computer, which figures out all the stuff. Actually, it, it's, just as expensive i would argue to make a cg film as it is a hand drawn one so now it's just about like you know for it's a business so you, you know what makes money and the, i think to some degree there's a, a you know one begets the other so if a cg film makes a lot of money then people make more cg films and so right now the the tide may be towards cg so there's pressure to do cg which i think is great when you see a company like ardman resist that and stay true to who they are the other thing that's interesting about ardman as a company is i think in was it 2018 like the, the founders of the company gave the 140 people that work at the company, a majority ownership, they gave it to them. Like, so like it's a company that's owned by the artists and the managers and the supervisors and all the people that belong to the company. So in some ways I like supporting, I like the fact that that gets supported, you know, that's a great way to be. It's not a publicly traded company. It's a company owned by private people that they have a vested interest in their own success so that they they own a piece of that film, right? And so that's a unique thing in the world that we live in now. I, and I think that's something to be championed. That's separate from the film, but it's cool to know those things, you know? Yeah. But we can talk about the movie. So the movie, Shaun the Sheep is, uh, Art Farmageddon is part of a series of Shaun the Sheep movies you could have the Aardman Cinematic Universe. You could argue that this is the Marvel, the most famous cinematic universe is the, Mar- the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And maybe the least famous is the Aardman <laughs> Cinematic Universe. And there's a series about uh, Shaun the Sheep. I recommend you see them if you like this one. So in this one, what happens is they live in a, uh, a, a, a Shaun the Sheep lives in, on a farm in Mossy Bottom's the name of the farm and an alien spaceship crash lands close to Mossy Bottom. And it's up to Shaun and his friends to save that alien and send that alien back to their planet, all the while being chased by a nefarious government agency. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's like ET meets Claymation and Shaun the Sheep meets uh, Men in Black. And it has great, and one of the things that's great about it, it's a little bit of a throwback in its comedy. So it's, it takes place in the UK, but there's no talking. So in the traditional Ardman world, like there's no, there's no actual dialogue, right? certainly there's some like newspaper where you can see the heading but even some of the newspapers like it's gobbledygook that's on there just representations of words right and it's comedy in the buster keaton tradition of comedy the charlie chaplin uh, tradition of comedy it's physical comedy it's what happens on the screen more in the tradition of silent films right so people love silent films and there's something pure about that again about it being it doesn't have to be it's like it doesn't matter culturally if you're in Europe or in South America or in Asia like or in the United States for that matter or in the North America like the funny the funny is still funny right so i would ask your audience to watch it and watch it for specifically the comedy because it's a pretty it's a really funny movie i'm always surprised i mean i see so many animated films that are supposed to be comedies and they're just not, they're just, or they, they're just not funny. How's that? And it's always a struggle and I work on a lot of them. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that the rest of them, Yeah, my movies, the movies I work on are really funny, but it's not easy. Like that's what I, I, I'm saying is, is that making great physical comedy is difficult and challenging. And Shaun the Sheep is a great example of great physical comedy consistently throughout the movie. It's funny and it's charming. Um, I love the claymation. And, And every once in a while I stop and I watch and I think, well, how do they do that? You know, as a filmmaker itself, like, and this is something that most audiences don't have to do, but like, I would say, like, think about if you see something suspended in the air, like how did they have a, they have a rig and that they had to remove it later. And like how much planning went into making the thing. I know that there is a, there's something to be said about not knowing those things, right? Like you should be able to walk into a film cold and enjoy it for what it is. But in the case of like the filmmakers, like anyone that works in the industry, I think it's hard to, to divorce yourself from that and I what I find a lot of times is I try to watch the movie on two levels. I watch the movie on the pure enjoyment connection emotion level like does it tell the story and am I into it and am I interested in that but there's a part of me that's always interested in the filmmaking and I have an appreciation for the difficulties of that filmmaking process not just the physical making of it but then everything that went into like getting it made getting it made and approved by the studio there's a whole other level of difficulty that happens with that and that I think in this case, like the physical making of the movies, it's challenging, and it's it's not you can't just do whatever you want. If you suspend an anime a claymated animated character in the air and don't figure out how to put them in the air, they fall. They can't just you can't just throw them up there and they just stick. So there's physicality to it that you have to figure out. And I think that's something that when you watch it, I think you could you could think about those things. Like I think that's you know the thing about that's unique about claymation versus some of these other films that we are looking at today.
0: Turning our attention to the fourth film on our list and the second Pixar film, it's Soul. The nominated team is Pete Doctor and Dana Murray.
1: So Soul is uh, uh, directed by Pete Doctor, who now is the head of uh, Pixar proper, like all of Pixar. So I think it happened while this movie was being made. I I don't know the time frame of it all, but this so this may be to some degree the last or in a while, a movie to be directed by Pete Doctor, who's a prolific director at Pixar. So he directed Monsters, Inc., which criminally underrated Monsters, Inc., in my opinion. I think Monsters, Inc. is a fantastic, oh,
0: fantastic film.
1: Um, and Up um, and Inside Out. So, like, very different movies, right? And then this one, on top of that, maybe it's closest to Inside Out. But, like, I think I think Soul is an extraordinary movie to, in a lot of ways. You know, it's, like, it's a meditative exploration of life, death, their purpose of life, it touches on depression and, and the feeling of, of midlife crisis. There's a lot sort of wrapped up in this movie, which if I said, this is an animated film about all these things. I think most people are like, what an animated film about all those things, which I think sort of plays into sort of Pixar's strengths as far as like adults themes inside a movie that appeals also to children. Like, uh, like the soul has this idea of a midlife crisis, of, of a purpose. of of death, of like the afterlife and what happens before. So it's risky. The idea of risk-taking, creative risk-taking is something to be admired. And I think when you look at this film and what it's about and what it's trying to do and your audience can can decide how successful it is at these things, these are huge risk-taking themes that I want to, like when I see it and I watch it, I applaud because I always try to put myself in the seat of that filmmaker of the, and not just the director, but each person working on that movie, whether it's the production designer, the head of layout, the DP, the cinematographer, the animator. And these are hard things to do to to tell stories about. And at each one of these levels, Pixar is firing on all cylinders. Like I look at that movie and I, I'm amazed at the lighting. Like just the lighting alone, like, when you look at New York Brooklyn the lighting is amazing like and I and, and you notice it almost every step of the way on a Pixar movie like I remember seeing Toy Story 4 and just being amazed at how they captured it was like a, a consignment store right like thing and then it, like the dust in the air and the dust bunnies and just like the deep level of detail it looks photoreal and in the case of soul it looks photoreal but it's not and you're aware it's not because it's stylized in its lines, in its shape language, there's these things that make it not photoreal, but like the surfacing and the lighting, the way the light reacts in it. Pixar literally rents a, you know, a camera and a, a professional lens package like from Cook or from Ari and, and Panavision. And then they map that distortion, the, the actual distortion onto like how they do their camera. Like all of that makes things look realistic. And it's like painstakingly done, so more so than any other studio that I know. Like they really go through and do their homework, and it costs a lot of money to do that stuff. It's not simple because <laughs> it doesn't just isn't just the price of renting it. Then you have to invent technology that represents it. Pixar is amazing at doing that, and so that the craft of CG filmmaking, like I see them working at a level that I don't see anybody else at, and that's just from my point of view. Like I just hands down, those guys, when you look at that kind of craft of it, is. It's just extraordinary. And their depiction of, for example, the great before and the great after, which is the afterlife and the before life is super interesting. It's like influenced by Miro. It has this line quality to it. It actually uses line. The character design is crazy. Like it's this crazy, like, 2d flat thing that like but it works in 3d like and it lacks color like so it's almost like so this is a good point of comparison compare glenn keen's depiction of the over the moon world of the moon to like the before the great before and the great after and i'm not saying one's better than the other but they are very different but they are trying to do a very similar thing in depicting a world that's not ours, right? And building a world, a believable world. And I don't say saying realistic, but I mean, believable in the context of the movie world of their own. The comedy is great. The, the pathos is great. And like, you really do relate to these characters and what they're going through. Like, it's really, it's really, it's sort of, it becomes about what is the meaning of life, which it's kind of, it's again, this large, huge, meditative idea that's unanswerable in a lot of ways or shouldn't be answerable because it's not, you know, but it does breach that question. It, uh, approach the subject and it, it does deal with it. It lives in that world and it's comfortable living in that world, which I think is super admirable. The other thing you should notice, and this is something that I don't normally talk about about when we talk about animated films is the music. So you have John Baptiste and you have Trent Reznor, and Atticus Ross, they come together to make the score and it's amazing. And it really supports the movie in a way. And I remember saying to my wife while we're watching like, this score is amazing. And like, I guess to some degree that's maybe not great because it's kicking you out of the movie. But like, at the same time, like as a filmmaker, I was appreciating the score. And it's hard, again, divorce myself from the movie watcher and the filmmaker, but I was, I was blown away by it. I thought they did a great job.
0: Ken, before we move on to our, our final film on the nominee mm-hmm. list, I want to go back to something we mentioned earlier about Pixar having two nominees on the list this year. Mm-hmm. Story aside, and maybe score aside as well, what do you think from a techno point of view differentiates these two films, both coming out of the Pixar house, Mm -hmm. both demonstrating the advantage that we talked about that Pixar brings to a movie, but technically how are these movies different or how have they utilized that differently?
1: So I think you have one that's skewing more towards stylized, at least in its depiction of its most of its world, in the in in uh, the sense of uh, onward, and you have one that's skewing a slightly more toward realism on the on the soul side, right? And it's appropriate, right? So, you know, like we discussed, how onward it's, it's a fantasy film, right? So, like it uses fantasy art as its inspiration. So you can really feel the production designer, the lighting taking its cues from that influence in that world. Whereas this one, being soul, it's taking its its cues from the real world or our our modern world right and so i think it's it's a great example of you know someone once said or people say oh see all cg films look the same like i don't think that these two look the same like i i don't see it when i look at those two things as the same i mean this one has also this the great before and the great after which are completely different so like right you have that sort of differentiation between the, the, the the two things i think the character designs are also different like when you look at they're they're like the proportions aren't the same like they're they're not designed by the same people like and you can see that in the design of the characters too in terms of like what they have there i think there's more cartooniness in the majority of onward than there is in the majority of of soul and i don't think that's a bad thing i think that that's those are choices that are being made in each of those films that like are appropriate for those movies and you know i think that there's value in those choices i think that that that's something that's it's, it's really great and and I, I again a tip of my hat to Pixar for having two films that are so different and both nominated in a in in the same year Like it's really really amazing you know and and Soul didn't have the benefit of a full theatrical release for COVID reasons I would have loved to have seen Soul on the big screen I think it's mm. one of those things mm. that it would have been really interesting especially because of the use of negative space in in the before great before and the great after like, I just think the design. The actual production design of those worlds is
0: phenomenal. The final film on our list, very different than the ones that have come before, Wolfwalkers. The team is Tom Moore, Ross Stewart, Paul Young, and Stefan Rolands.
1: So Wolfwalkers comes from, well, Apple. And so Apple made a huge deal with this company called Cartoon Saloon. And Cartoon Saloon is a company, animation company in Ireland. And it is the only hand-drawn, 2D animated film uh, in the list of nominees. It's an extraordinary movie. I highly recommend it. And it's it's a movie about a lot of things, but it takes place, I think in the 17th century, it takes place in Ireland and, uh, and, and Cromwell's uh, army has invaded and they're taking over a small town, Kilkenny, which I think is where a cart- cartoon saloon started. And uh, one of the things that's going on is that they're de- going through a process of deforestation. And as part of the deforestation, they're having a wolf problem. And so they hire people, to, hunters to come in and hunt the wolves. And one of the hunters, uh, a young daughter is, sees herself as a wolf hunter and goes into the forest without his permission and befriends a young girl who turns out to be a wolf walker, which is a shapeshifter who becomes a wolf and is, a, and is the daughter of the leader of a pack of wolves. It's about a lot of things. So obviously movies like this have a lot of subtext. There's, it's talking about colonialism, uh, imperialism. It's talking about uh, nature, environmentalism, uh, the balance of nature and man uh, takes place in Ireland, made, you know, directed by Irish people. So there's an authenticity to it. It's, a, it's based on a legend from, the, from that period. It's done in the style of woodblock. So look at the art style, the way that it's being drawn. It's completely unique to um, Cartoon Saloon. If you look at, there's two other sort of Ireland based films they've made or animated films. They made The Secret of Kells and uh, Song of the Sea. And it's, I think the director referred to this as the third in their trilogy, Irish trilogy, folklore trilogy. And so it's like the final capstone of it all. And uh, the uh, the drawing is amazing. It's just like, look at the woodblock style. Look at how they use shape and the shaped language to describe the forces that are at at odds here. So if you look at anything related to nature, whether it be the wolves, the the environment of the forest, all these great curved lines. And if you look at the civilization and the the British forces, all straight, rectilinear, the color, uh, uh, sumptuous, autumnal colors in the forest, super vibrant, and then grays and muted browns in the, in the, in the, in the, in the British world or the, the, the human world and how these clash and come together. And when transfer the transformations happen, how that, you know, transcends some of that shape language, there's wolf vision, which is super cool, which is like the point of view of the wolf. Also, this is the most 3d or dimensional of the other two mm. um movies they made in this trilogy like they you can see that they used 3d in parallel with the use of a uh, heavy use of parallax when it's like uh the 2d world but also in there's several shots in which you're sort of traveling with wolf pack or running through the forest and you have you know these branches and, and trees coming by us and it's obviously done somewhat in 3d and that is a new thing in this film that i don't remember and again i remember memory i'm everyone's a bad narrator of their own <laughs> stories. I don't remember seeing in some of their older stuff. I think it's fascinating. They too do a lot of, um, I don't want to say outsourcing, but their animation done it all over the world. So I think, you know, speaking to something of the pandemic, they they were already ready when this hit to deal with the pandemic, because a lot of their work is done by individual artists in other countries. And so if, if you watch it, like, and you can't tell when you watch it, it looks like it's done all by one vision. So it, it speaks to some of the resiliency of animation to the pandemic in terms of like how they're able to sort of keep making this movie in sort of these times. And so the challenges of the times and how they just kept going, and it looks like it's done by one place, you know, especially because it was done all over the world. Um, and I, I think it's an extraordinary movie. It, it, the hand drawn quality is amazing. And to sort of get an idea, so what I mean by the hand-drawn, collie, look at the wolf pack. The, the depiction of the wolf pack is really amazing. Like, so it's a single organism. Like, it travels in this way of like, like it sort of has almost a fluid dynamic way of of moving. But we, even within the fluid dynamic, there are individual. You can see the artistry of the individual wolves. So, like, the challenge of drawing that is extraordinary, and yet it's there. It's in. It's 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 evident, and it's it's and the charm of it. I don't. You know, you could do something like that in CG, but it would be less charming. I think when your audience is looking at all these movies, there's a good question to ask after. Why was that movie animated? What made it unique as an animated experience? And does that, you know, like everyone who watches these things probably wants to put on the hat, who would I vote for? Which one would I vote for? So part of it is like, ultimately the thing that's most important is which movie did I enjoy or connect with that, you know, would transcend the medium, right? So like you have just that alone, right? So that's a great category. And that's probably the single most important thing. But beyond that, if you were to imagine you're an Oscar voter, you're trying to vote partly on the category, right? Is what about this film as an animated medium, not genre is unique and makes it, and, and how does the, how, which one takes advantage of the medium to elevate the storytelling beyond, you know, a normal, regular live action movie, that maybe a around, but a live action film. And I think that's the question you should ask yourself if you were to play the game, I'm an Oscar voter, which one do I vote for? Because that's, I think, an essential part about why you have categories, right? You have a category of you know, best animated feature, which is like, it's kind of a weird thing to say, the best animated feature, well, what does that mean? And I, say, I think it's you know, a lot of things, I think it's just the best movie in the category, but it's also the one that takes advantage of the
0: media. Well, Ken, there's a lot of creativity, I think, on display with these films we've discussed. Are there films from last year that you want to draw attention to that didn't make this list? Yeah, I, yeah,
1: sure. I, I'll give you three just because I can't keep you on. I won't give you, but there's a ton of great movies out there, right? So, but I'll try to, I'll, I try to come up with 3 that They're very different. So one is called the Willoughbys. Um, it's super interesting by Netflix. Um, it's the story of, of neglected children trying to like basically off their parents in some way and become independent and so And it's super stylized, really fascinating. The look is amazing. It's CG. It's generated on the computer, but like it has this crazy stylized world, it, it, these Kids with red hair and the character designs out, way out there. It's it's really fun. I, I was really surprised by that movie. Like, and so that's a lot of times what I like are things that surprise me. And like that movie is surprising almost in the way that like, you got to prove, you're like, how did this thing get made? You know, like this thing is crazy. Like most people try to steer you back into more traditional things. And it's really, it's, and it has a great sense of humor about it. It's a, it's a really fun movie. Um, it's, it's directed by uh, Chris Pern. Um, it's on Netflix. I, w- I would definitely uh, recommend seeing that one if you're if you like animated films it's it's fun for the family so it's good if your family person like is
0: it okay appropriate for kids it's totally appropriate for kids and it's not going to give kids ideas about often their parents right no 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 no. it's more of a tongue and tongue and cheek (laughs) it's okay before (laughs) we recommend it i want to make sure no 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 no, no.
1: they're not going (laughs) to or your your son and sons or daughters aren't going to try to offer another movie that i that was surprising that i really liked was the croods uh uh, a new age yeah that one is a sequel so it has problems or the challenge of being a sequel it's directed by um, uh, Joel Crawford uh, and uh, it's done by DreamWorks Animation, um, and it follows the the story of the Crude, This is the family from the first one, as they find a new sanctuary. And the, but the sanctuary comes with a, with, with with a hit, with a hitch, and the hitch is there's another family already living there. This you know the story of like envy between two families and sort of rivalry. One of the strengths of the Croods universe or the Crude since now there's two two films is like they build this fantastical cave prehistoric cave world. And I remember when I saw the first one, you know, you say it's a caveman movie. And I think most people say, well, I've seen that. I've seen caveman movies, right? So I, I kind of know what I'm gonna, do. but it's actually extraordinary in its world building. And that it's like, it's the prehistoric universe depicted in a way that you've never seen before with mm. an, co- animal hybrids and crazy, you know, environments. And it has great scale, great panoramic vistas. And it's just, this is more of that. And it just continues to build on it. And it's really interesting and fun. Um, came out great. So I would definitely recommend that. Another one, which is maybe a little bit not quite as family-aware, um, it's an anime film uh, called A Whisker Away. And it's a very strange movie. So like I'm Japanese. It, my heritage is Japanese and Japanese-American. I was born here, but my parents were born in Japan. And I have an affinity for anime. And this one is about a forlorn, I think it's middle school girl who's in love with this boy who doesn't seem to reciprocate. And she meets a magical cat and because she meets this magical cat gets the magical power to turn herself into a cat temporarily so she can and then the cat becomes friends with the boy and then the, all this she, her world of cat world and humor world sort of start to blur and then it's super imaginative it's very japanese in sort of it's telling and it's strange in its humor and I, I think it's hard, sometimes hard for Western audiences because it has a lot of Japanese aesthetic in terms of its storytelling and its character design. But I think it's super imaginative. So I wanted to pick something also that was sort of like different. And that's, that's definitely a different kind, kind of movie. So there's, there you go. There's three so what I would consider very different movies that I would recommend that are not necessarily on the, on the list of animated films, but I, I really enjoyed and had fun sort of seeing.
0: Well, Ken, I had fun just talking about all of this today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate sure. it.
1: Well, it was my pleasure. And I, I have to say that, you know, I encourage everyone in your audience to see animated films. The animation medium is a medium that can do a lot of different kinds of things.
0: Thanks, Ken. We'll bring you back. We'll talk about it some more. Thanks. for so right. Okay. Thank you. Our Oscar episodes will continue next week, so please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. I really appreciate your feedback. You can send email comments to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. If you're enjoying the series, please rate us where you get your podcast. It helps us reach new listeners. And new listeners, the best way to peruse previous episodes is on our website, belowtheline.biz. More than 70 episodes available. We might have talked about one of your if you're on facebook you can find photos of the behind the scenes materials at podcast below the line and finally you can follow the podcast on twitter and instagram it's at pod below the line thanks to curtis Five for our music and john juan for our logo the logo is available on t-shirts mugs and stickers at redbubble.com once again thanks for listening be safe out there